Well, good morning. How are we? Oh, that was good. That was good. Well, I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in Philippians today, and um, while you're getting there, let me get us all caught up on where we are. Uh, If you're new with us, first of all, welcome. If you're a guest with us, or maybe you've just missed a couple weeks, right now, we are right smack in the middle of a series called Perspective. And what we've done in this series is, is basically walked through the book of Philippians, and we've looked at the way perspective makes a profound difference in our lives. It impacts our relationship with God and each other. Uh, honestly, this has been an impactful series for me so far, and it doesn't hurt that Philippians is one of my favorite books. So I'm excited to get into that, but before I do, I need to take a moment to apologize The last couple times that I've spoken, I realized that I completely forgot to introduce myself. (laughs) Turns out not everyone knows me. So um, here in this moment, I just want to stop and say, my name is Justin. I'm one of your pastors here at Northeast. And just a show of hands, how many are aware that Northeast, we are right in the middle of launching, starting a new church? That is awesome. That is awesome. Well, that is why I'm here. My family and I moved here for the purpose of launching Stone Oak Bible Church in North Central San Antonio. I'm your church planting pastor. We look forward to what God's going to do as we take the gospel to a new community. Um, And as we kind of move forward with this, you're going to hear a lot more details and a lot of different ways that you can get involved. But right now, what I want to do is kind of formally open the door and invite you to come find me and ask me any questions that you might have. I want you to know who I am so that if you have any concerns, any thoughts, any interests, any questions, uh, I want to invite you, take the opportunity, come grab me. That's why I'm here. Uh, I want to hear from you. I want to I hear what's going on. I want to try to plug you in, in in ways that you can help. Um, we're so excited for what's got, what God is going to do, and I'll make a promise that as we go forward, I will keep you in the loop ways that you can participate with us and ways that you can partner with us as we launch a new church for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Well, let's get started today. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive right in to Philippians chapter 2. Now, right now, I come to you, and I ask for your help. I ask that you give us wisdom as we read your word, that you open our eyes in ways that only you can that you speak to us in ways that only you do through your word. And so right now, we just set aside this time, and we pray that you have your will with it. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Philippians chapter 2, as I said, we're gonna, what I'm going to do is we're going to be specifically in verses 12 and 13. I want to read the whole thing, and then what we'll do is we'll take a step back, and we'll walk slowly through it, Okay. So Philippians 2, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will, to work, for his good pleasure." Now, what we should notice right off the bat is our first word of this verse, which is therefore. Therefore should be a trigger word for you. Whenever you drop into a a verse and therefore is the first word, 
uh, it should trigger you to want to know what came before it. Because obviously it's building on something. It's like if you were to get an email, a long email, you opened it, you scrolled to the middle of it, and you pulled a sentence that said, now because of all of that, I want you... Now immediately it should trigger in your mind, I really need to know what all of that is, right? The same is true here. I heard it said that if you find a therefore, that you need to find out what it's there for. And that's super cheesy, but you're not going to forget it, all right? You're not going to forget it. Um, So therefore, what is Paul pointing back to? Well, in our case, it's verses uh, 5 through 11, and Drew walked us through this last week. Basically what happened is Paul was drawing our attention back to the work of Jesus, said he humbled himself, he came in to humanity, that he submitted himself, that he was obedient, that he was a servant, that he was even obedient to death. And because of that, God exalted him above all other names, that every knee would bow, every tongue will confess. And so Paul says, therefore, looking back at the obedience of Jesus, looking back on his example, and then he calls them to obedience. Because of the obedience of Jesus, now we, he's challenging them to be obedient. And what does he call them to do? It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is one of those verses where if you were to pull this out, out of the book, even out of its own sentence, and you were to have this phrase stand alone, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It could lead you to some dark places. It could lead you to some, some pretty terrible theological places. And what, what it could do to you is you, you kind of start to think, work at your own salvation, work towards your own salvation, work for your own salvation with fear and trembling. And as you do this, you can begin to start to feel a weight that it was never yours to carry. You start to feel the weight of carrying your own salvation on your shoulders, that somehow it's up to you, that somehow it's about you. And let's be honest for a moment, that should absolutely terrify you. Why? Because you know you, and I know me. I know that on my best days, I don't want to carry that weight. I know that on the days that I wake up right when my alarm clock goes off, I have discipline, I spend time in the Word, I spend time in prayer, I go out, I'm, I'm eating right, I'm working out. Uh, Jesus brings six people to know Him in my neighborhood, and then He heals someone, and that's all before lunch. On days like that, I don't even want to wear that weight, let alone my average days, let alone those bad days those bad weeks. This should absolutely terrify us because we know it's not true. The reality is if the gospel message were a motivational message to tell you get out there and you can do it, try harder, put the big boy pants on, get out there, you can handle this, you can work toward it. If that were the gospel message, you have every right to leave this place with your head hung very low very discouraged, depressed even, because you know it's not true. You have mounds of evidence, years of evidence that shows that you are indeed a lousy Savior, right? 
It's okay to admit that. You're, you're safe here. You, you have loads of evidence that suggests that you are not very good at this whole saving thing, right? And so the gospel is good. The good news is good because it's true. And it tells us the truth about ourselves. The gospel tells us exactly the truth about ourselves, exactly what we know, which is we can't do this. We're really lousy at being saviors that we can't accomplish this, that we, that we mess up continually, but Jesus can accomplish this. He did. He is our good and perfect Savior, and that once and for all, He accomplished it all. That's the gospel, and it's good because it's true. It's true. The gospel message is not try harder, keep at it. It's come to Jesus because He did it. He did it all. And so to understand this verse, what we need to do then is to take that phrase, work out your own salvation, and put it back where it's supposed to be, right in the middle of the context. And as you read, right after, starting in verse 13, for it is God who works in you. Notice the wordplay. Work out your own salvation because it's God who works in you. Work out because he's worked in. We work out only what God has worked first in us. Does that make sense? We show publicly, we show outwardly what God has done in us, inside of us, privately. Now, another way to say this, and I really like this, is we do not believe in a salvation by works, but we believe in a salvation that works. Does that make sense? And so right here, I want to draw our attention back. It's probably a page before uh, where you're at in your Bible. And you don't have to turn here with me, but if you want to, you can. uh, Chapter 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Church, he initiated the work. He began it. Your salvation is because God stepped in and made the first move. Not only that, this verse says that the work that God started, he's also initiating its completion. That he not only starts it, but he completes it. And so in the midst of this, we look at this and we say, God, you are good. There's nothing that I could do. This, we are saved because of your initiative, not ours. We work out what he has worked in. Now, why does this matter? I really want you to follow me. This is important. Why does this matter? Because religious activities are lousy, puny substitutes for a real relationship with Jesus. Empty religious activities are a lousy, terrible substitute for a real relationship with Jesus. Let me unpack this. Religious activities tend to focus on what? What we do, right? Focuses in on what we're doing exteriorly. But it doesn't really pay attention to what's going on inside. So if all we're doing is working out without God first working in, I would submit to you there is not many, that is the most empty life that I can imagine. You're continually going through motions. You're continually trying to do stuff without first having a relationship with Jesus Christ that it comes out of. 
Um, we're moral people. We seem to have it all together, but on the inside, you feel it. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been there. And you felt that emptiness of going through motions without ever feeling a relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, let, me, let me put it like this. It's like a man who is severely dehydrated, really needs a drink. He is dying of thirst. So he goes to the store and he buys one of these, a really nice, clean water bottle. I mean, he spent the money on it. He actually, you know, it's glass. It's a nice water bottle. Um, so he carries around with him this really nice water bottle. It's nice, it's clean, it's empty, and he just carries it around with him wherever he goes. Now, on the outside, everyone who knows this man, everyone who's in this man's life thinks, that guy must be severely hydrated. He's drinking all the time. He's carrying a really nice water bottle with him wherever he goes. The dude must be drinking a lot. But even in the midst of that, as you're carrying around your water bottle, you feel the effects of that thirst. You feel the dehydration setting in. You feel it because the reality is that a container for water is not a replacement for drinking water. That a really nice and empty container for water does not substitute. It is a lousy substitution for actually having a drink. Um, religious activities, empty religious activities are a lot like that. They're like really nice and empty water bottles in the hands of dehydrated men. And unfortunately, too many men have died of dehydration while all the time holding on tight to their really nice but really empty water bottles. And our text this morning helps us understand that God works in so that we can work out. That God first works in so that we can work out. That he pours in. There is no satisfaction found with working out before he has worked in because the true satisfaction is found in him pouring in. And empty religious activities like empty water bottles uh, do nothing to quench the thirst. They do nothing to satisfy that, that need for water because that's a God initiative. And that's what God does when he pours into us what we so desperately need and what we can find no other place but him. So we work out what he has worked in. And how are we supposed to do it? Paul says, with fear and trembling. These are a little bit of unique terms. We don't typically use them in our relationship with God today, uh, in our normal language. You don't find them in many worship songs. Uh, but as you read the scriptures, these terms are all throughout the scriptures. To, they're worship words. They're what God's people do uh, before God in an act of worship. These are worship words. I read a commentator who was speaking directly about this passage and specifically these words. I want to read this to you. It said, these terms are calling Christians to live their lives with a sense of awe and wonder as they live out daily the salvation that was planned for them before the foundation of the world. And he goes on to say this, and I think it's beautiful. He says, the mundane Christian activities dance and shimmer 
with delight when we learn to coat them with this privilege. And living for the Lord becomes easier when we understand that it's the Lord for whom we live. Isn't that good? It's a worship word. And the the reality is when God pours in and we live out what he's poured in, our lives ultimately are worshipful to him. That it's worship the way we live. And isn't this really what the Christian life is all about? That God steps in that he loves us, that he saves us, that he pours into us, that he works in us. And from that place, we then live out what God has been doing in us. It's the gospel message. So now the question becomes, what? What does God work in us? In, In verse 13, it says, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Both to will and to work, both the desire and the power, both the ability and the motivation to do what God has called us to do. So God then pours into us everything we need to live for him, to live out our faith. What did Paul just do? He absolutely killed any ability we have to boast. He just put an end to it. You boast that you're good. Well, I gave you the ability to be good. You can't boast in that. Well, then I'll boast in the fact that I chose to be, well, no, because not only did I give you the ability to be good, but I gave you the desire to want that. You have nothing of yourself to boast in. Uh, In chapter three, we're gonna get here in a couple weeks. Uh, There's a part in chapter three where Paul basically takes all of his resume, everything that he has done that is worthy of consideration, lays it on the table, steps back, and he calls it rubbish. Now, he didn't just turn British. We don't use this term very much, but if you look at the original language, this term is a strong term. It's a really strong, it's used to describe excrement, that really nasty, stinky trash of your kitchen, like that rotten. Okay, I have a story. My wife is pregnant. And she's in that stage, and she's sitting here, so you can know who I'm talking about. Uh, She is in that stage of her pregnancy right now where smells really bother her, really bother her. So I can be literally changing my little boy across the house, and I will hear her come running from another room going, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, 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 and like running outside. Like, it's that bad. His diapers are pretty bad, so it's not all her, but... Paul says, all my good stuff is that. All my good stuff is like the trash that you need to get out of your home immediately. All my good stuff is is the trash that makes pregnant women flee. That's That's all my good stuff. You have nothing, nothing to boast in. But at the same time, if you catch this, we have everything in the world to be confident in. Because Paul just took it out of our hands. That Paul just took it out of our hands. It gives us the ability, right in the middle of our own weakness, to stand in confidence. Say, it's not about me. It's not about what I bring to the table. It's about him. Nothing to boast in, yet everything to be confident in. Church, hear me. It's not about your strength. Um, God didn't pick you on his team because you're awesome. But because he loves you. 
more than that, he doesn't keep you on his team because you're awesome, um, but because he loves you. We don't have confidence in our awesomeness. Praise God. Our confidence is in Christ alone, who completed the work, who we stand in the middle of our weakness, and we say, he is good, and he will provide everything I need. Amen? Now, when I leave this place and I'm confronted yet again that I'm weak, and you're confronted with the fact that you're weak, I want you to hold that, because it's easy for that to slip our minds. It reminds me of uh, 2 Corinthians. It's another letter that Paul wrote. It's one of the most beautifully articulated by Paul, I think. Uh, you don't have to turn here. It'll be on the screens for you. It says this in chapter 12, verse 9. But he said to me, Jesus said this, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds by saying, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. So Paul's perspective here is he has nothing to boast in, yet everything in the world to be confident in. And I want to finish with our last phrase of our verse. It says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now this is a big, a big perspective shift. And I think, honestly, that the best analogy that I, that I can think of comes with being a parent. And I'm going to compare this specifically to parenting toddlers. Um, I think you could apply it all over, but the, the toddler thing is a fresh wound for me. So <laughs> I want to start from here. I have two boys, and I love them incredibly. I really do. I love those guys. And it's because I love them that I do not let them get everything they want. Why? Because they would kill themselves. Like, I'm convinced that my boys might not last the day if they were given that kind of, of freedom. I mean, think about it, parents. Letting your toddlers get everything they want, every desire, every whim, and we just let it happen. I don't know if your boys or your family's anything like mine, but it would be chaotic. It would be destructive. It would not be healthy for them at all. And the reality is, as a parent, one of my favorite words in the world that I use all the time is no. No. Don't do that. Don't jump off that. Don't kick him. Don't drink that. Don't pick that up. That, I'm constantly providing no's to my children. Why? Because I love them, and I want them to survive into their adulthood. I really do. And so I provide no's because of my love for them. Our relationship with God is a lot like that. It's a lot like that because we are like his kids con consistently asking for things or doing things that are absolutely terrible for us. Absolutely terrible for us. They're destructive to us and to others. And in that moment, God steps in and in his good pleasure says no. He says no. And when things don't go, go our way and when we're kind of upset about things not going our way, in that moment, God reveals 
his heart for us reveals his good pleasure, that his good is ultimately our good. Paul realizes that God's good is our good. God's good is your good. And listen, God is in the business of saving you from yourself. He's really good at it. Just as I save my children from themselves, God is good at saving you from yourself. Even though we tend to think that at times we're we're smarter than him or we kind of have a better idea of how this thing should go, our perfect father loves us. And as I was As I was preparing this week, honestly, one of the things I kept thinking about is how many times God has shown his love, has demonstrated his love to me by telling me no. How many times, church, has God shown you that he loves you by not letting you get what you were asking for, by not saying yes to every whim that you have? There's a quote by Tim Keller that I love says this, we would never imagine that getting our heart's deepest desires might be the worst thing that could happen to us. God's good is our good. And for some of you, I think this is exactly what you needed to hear this morning. That this is exactly what God has has for you this morning. That you can trust him with everything. That you can trust him with everything everything, even when things do not make sense, that you, like a child, can step back and trust that your father's good pleasure is really your good pleasure. When you look at your life and you say, how in the world could this turn around and work together for my good? That in that moment, you realize that I have a perfect father who loves me, who his good is ultimately my good. We serve a God who we can trust. That's hard sometimes. But the God we we serve is also a God that we can completely trust. In Romans 8.28, there's there's a familiar verse here. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Um, I'm convinced that for many of us, it's easier today to trust God with our eternal life than it is to trust him with our current life. It's far easier to say, God, you got me. I know I'm secure, but right now you're kind of messing this up. I don't think you know fully what's going on right now. If I could maybe give you more details, I'm sure you would. It's easier to trust him with later It's really hard to trust him right now. And God is saying to us, he is worthy of trust both for your future, yes, amen, but also right here in your present, no matter what that looks like for you right now. And I can't stand up here and say that for everyone in this room that it's pretty and there's a bow tied on the top and it's a pretty little life that makes sense because the reality is that doesn't happen and that doesn't exist. The Bible tells us that while we're here, we're going to have trouble, but take heart. In the middle of it, God knows. He knows you, he knows what you need, and he knows what your good is. 
And we can trust that his good is our good. Think about that statement. The God of the universe loves you. And his good, his good pleasure just so happens to be yours. That should give us an incredible amount of confidence as we walk through life's ups and downs to know that his good is, is our good. So we see in this, in this verse, in this passage, uh, Paul, Paul's perspective is really shaped by three things. Knowing that we work out what God works in, knowing that he has nothing to boast in, yet everything in the world to be confident in, and knowing that God's good is ultimately our good. So I want to finish our time this morning with a little bit of a perspective check. A little bit of a perspective check, because here's the reality. I believe that in our culture, in our communities, that our tendency is to be secretly thirsty. That we're a group of people who are secretly dehydrated. Many of us even carry these things. And still, we know that we need a drink desperately. And that this is a lousy substitute for it. We look around and we even wonder, is everyone else like me? Is everyone else just feeling this emptiness as they go about what they do? Maybe you're here and you think, is everyone else in this room feeling as empty as I am when I do all these religious things? Is everyone else as thirsty as as I am? Um, My heart, my prayer, is that this morning that we simply admit what we already know. And that is that we are thirsty. And the things that we've tried to substitute, the religious motions or maybe the stuff of life that we've tried to substitute in for that water, that it's not cutting it and that we're, we feel dehydrated. We feel it. And my, my prayer is that right now that we just admit what we already know and that's that we're thirsty. Like the woman at the well um, in John Thirsty, Jesus says this in in John 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. One of my favorite worship leaders phrases it like this, he made me thirsty and then he came down and gave me drink. It's absolutely beautiful. And some of us in this room are feeling thirsty. And that is a God thing. That is a God thing. That is a God moment. And so in a few moments, I want to pray for us. And if I just described you, I want you to, in a few moments, I want to pray that your deep, deep need, your deep, deep thirst is quenched by the only one who can quench it. And that is Jesus Christ. That the water bottle you're carrying is meant to have water in it. It's meant to have water in it. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? If you're here this morning, you're in this place, and that's you, um, would you confess to him first that you're thirsty?
that you're dehydrated, that you're in need of him, would you pray that he comes and does what only he can? And I pray for every person in this room. Right now, I believe that you're working. I believe that right now you're revealing needs in people. You're revealing needs. You're revealing a thirst that nothing can quench. And right now, I just pray, God, that through your spirit, through your work, that you fill us. That you pour in so that we can leave here and live out, to live into what you have done in us. You first pour in so that we can work out. So God, in this moment, I, I thank you for speaking through your word. And I pray for us as we go out of this place, God, that you're not done speaking to us. And for anyone in this room who is pushing away a conviction right now, that God, that you will not release them. That you will speak to them even louder and clearer because it's only you who can satisfy our thirst. In Jesus' name, amen.